the author has done his best in the first 12 chapters to describe how great Jesus is. That he is better than anything you can possibly imagine or think. That he is above all that you can imagine or think. That, that he is that good. It's not just a description of, of how much better he is than everything, but what he has done for us that made him better. And then we get to chapter 13, and there's almost like this shift into chapter 13 where some theologians actually believe that chapter 13 was an add-on to a sermon that he had written for the people. Because it shifts from the position of Jesus being above all to the practical aspects of what it means to believe in him and to follow after him. And so this morning, I want to talk to you just a little bit about living outside the camp. So if you have your Bible, you can turn to Hebrews chapter 13. If you've got it on your phone, pull it up on your phone. New King James Version, whatever way you read God's word is the best way, just as long as you read it. If you don't have it, it'll be on the overhead behind me. I'm going to read all of chapter 13 to get us started. Mind you, Again, to get to where we are, he's preached how great Jesus is and how much better he is than everything that you could possibly imagine or think. And now he says in 13 verse 1, let brotherly love continue. Do not forget to entertain strangers, for by so doing some have unwittingly entertained angels. Remember the prisoners as if chained with them, those who were mistreated, since you yourselves are in the body also. Marriage is honorable among all, and the bed undefiled, but fornicators and adulterers God will judge. Let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have, for he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you, so we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Remember those who rule over you, who have spoken the word of God to you, whose faith follow, considering the outcome of their conduct. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Do not be carried about with various and strange doctrines, for it is good that the heart be established by grace." Not with foods which have not profited those who have been occupied with them. For we have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. From the bodies of those animal, for the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest for sin are burned outside the camp. Everybody say, outside the camp. Therefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered outside the gate. Therefore, let us go forth to him outside the camp. Everybody say, outside the camp. We're to go outside the camp, bearing his reproach. For here we have no continuing city, but we seek the one to come. Therefore by him let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. But do not forget to do good and share, for with such sacrifices God is well pleased. Obey those who rule over you and be submissive, for they watch out for your souls as those who must give account. Let them do so with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable for you. Pray for us, for we are confident that we have a good conscience in all things desiring to live honorably. But I especially urge you to do this, that I may be restored to you the sooner. 
Now may the God of peace who brought up our Lord Jesus from the dead, that great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you complete in every good work to do his will, working in you what is well-pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. And I appeal, I appeal to you, brethren, bear with the word of exhortation. For I have written to you in few words... Isn't it crazy that 13 chapters is considered few words in those days? Know that our brother Timothy has been set free with whom I shall see you if he comes shortly. Greetings to all those who rule over you and all the saints. Those from Italy greet you. Grace be with you all. Amen. When I was younger growing up in the Silver Valley, probably like many of you who have either grown up here or moved here years ago, it would have had to have been years ago. One of the things that I really enjoyed was from a very young age on, we would go camping up the North Fork River. Now that was back in the day when you could drive up the river on any weekend or any night after my dad got off of work and just find a place and pitch a tent and set up campfire and you could camp anywhere you wanted up the North Fork. It was great. It was amazing. I loved the outdoors. I loved the graces of the outdoors. And I enjoyed the being content, living content with the simplicities of the outdoors. But what I loved most about the outdoors was not what took place inside the camp, but what took place outside the camp. Now, when I was young, I could not stand, like, to sit around the fire. I remember, like, all the old people, <laughs> right, when you're young, all those old people, they just want to sit around the campfire and talk. Like, what fun is that? You know, I always wanted to be outside the camp. Like, I would be swimming in the river all day long. I would be trying to catch, you know, bullheads, and, and I would have a whole bunch of bullheads usually, and crawdads, and things like that, or we'd go fishing. I loved to go hiking. When we had motorcycles, we would be off riding motorcycles. Everything that I loved about camping took place outside the camp. Even as I've gotten older, and we don't camp very often, hardly ever as a family now, my wife and I, but when we do, I'm not somebody who likes to just sit around the fire. I'm someone who enjoys being outside the camp. And that is what the author of Hebrews is trying to get across to Christians at the end of his letter. Is that if you want to know about the real blessings in life, the abundant life for as good as the camp may seem and appear to be, the real blessings, the real abundance takes place outside the camp. In verse 13, if you don't catch this, this is like the theme of the whole chapter. You could skim right over this, but everything that he references comes back to this one verse. The challenge to Christians, to people who say they believe in God, who follow after Jesus, he says, let us go forth to him outside the camp. What does it mean to live outside the camp? What does it look like to live outside the camp? Well, from the verses we just read, I have three points that the author brings out. Living outside the camp is this. By grace, live content through love. 
Three things. By grace, by grace, live content through love. Three points of what it looks like to live outside the camp. Point number one, he's been driving home from the very beginning of his letter, is by grace. There's this section in chapter 13. It's verses 9 through 14. It's one of the greatest theological conclusions of all the letters that were written in the New Testament. He writes these words in verse 9, and he says, To the church, do not be carried about. Don't go from here to there to over there by various and strange doctrines. Now, by various doctrines would mean like there's going to be variances within the faith. That doesn't necessarily mean that they're strange. They're just different. We all have variances. The church is divided tremendously by the little things that we all believe. But, you know, there is much bigger things that we believe that unite the majority of us. Don't get caught up and carried away by the little various things that attempt to separate us inside of the church. But he doesn't just say the various things. He talks about the strange things, that there's weird things that take place. Don't allow those to carry you away. And then he says these words. He says, for it is, and we need to hear this for when it comes to various and strange doctrines and everything else that he says, for it is good that the heart be established by grace. For it is good that the heart be established by grace. What does that mean, established? That means that it's good that your heart would be strengthened, that your heart would have a foundation, that your heart would be able to stand tall when it is, when it is founded, when it is grounded in the aspect, in the idea, in the belief of grace. The ability to be able to receive those things that we do not deserve in life from God and to others. The ability for us to be able to receive from God those things which we do not deserve, and the ability for us to be able to give to others what they do not deserve. By grace, which it says, by grace, not with foods, which have not profited those who have been occupied with them. Not with foods, which have not profited those who have been occupied with them. Like, if you read this on the surface in modern-day language, what you're going to read right there is that, you know what, it's good for the heart, our faith, who we are, to be established by grace, not with foods, not with, like, the, the lusts of the world that doesn't profit anybody. That, that, when I read through that, that's the, uh, that's the first thing I think of because, you all know, like, I'm a food connoisseur. I love food, right? And it's easy to become, you know, sidetracked by food in life. I don't know about you, but I love a good burger, and you might be able to tell that. And it's, it's a constant battle. Like, it could sidetrack me. I know maybe that I'm supposed to be fasting or doing something spiritual, and you throw down a burger in front of me, and we's going to struggle. <laughs> and I can tell you almost everywhere I go, I love I try, I will always, I might eat certain things in, in certain places, but I will always try a burger there. And I can tell you right now, the hottest place in the panhandle of North Idaho is called Izzy's Comfort Kitchen on 4th Street in Coeur d'Alene. 
They have a peach bourbon burger that is out of this world. Amazing. And if we're not careful, we will allow these things to distract us from the main point. But really, what's being talked about here includes everything I just said. But what's really being driven home is that we don't get caught up in the rules. Remember who he's talking to. He's talking about people from the Jewish faith. He's talking about people who have focused on little things like what you should eat and what you shouldn't eat. And none of that has profited as he's proved throughout the previous 12 verses. Like the old law was great for life, but you know what? He says in there that it does not profit anybody because it does not bring salvation. Don't get caught up in all of these little rules because this isn't about a list of rules. This isn't about works. This isn't about the old ways. None of those are profitable to your life. He says, but we have an altar from which those who serve in the tabernacle have no right to eat. Meaning those priests, those people who serve in the old way that have a different faith than us have no right to eat from the new way. And that new way, that new altar is the cross of Jesus Christ. You can't serve the new while you're still serving the old. That's what he's talking about here. They're still living by works. They're still living by the old ways. And he goes on to describe, for the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest for sin, they are burned outside the camp. What in the world is this idea of outside the camp? Now, he's particularly referencing the Day of Atonement. And on the Day of Atonement, the animals were sacrificed. Their blood was used upon the altar for the forgiveness of the sins of people once a year. He's already proven that Jesus fulfilled that. Jesus' blood was spilled for all of mankind that we may be forgiven. But he goes on, and he, as he's describing this, we have to understand that he describes this thing that takes place outside the camp. The animals' bodies were burned outside the camp. And in the Old Testament, the law taught that everything that is outside the camp was unclean and evil. Think about what takes place outside the camp. I don't know about you, but there's certain things that would take place outside our camp when we went camping that shouldn't be taking place inside the camp, right? There's certain things you would only do when you weren't in front of everybody that's in the camp because if you did it inside the camp, not only would it be embarrassing, but it would be stinky. What takes place outside the camp? It's dirty. It's unclean. And this was the mentality of those who were taught the camp and the comforts of the camp and, and the joys of the camp and everything that's outside is unclean. It's dirty. It's filthy. There's nothing that we want to partake of that is outside the camp. So as these animals were sacrificed, their flesh, their bodies got put outside the camp with all things that were unclean and evil. But it wasn't just animals that were put outside the camp. You have to understand throughout all of the Old Testament, it is taught that people were banned to being outside the camp. And just to go through a list of some of the laws of why people were banished outside the camp, it says in various places, if you touch something unclean, if you even touched something that was considered to be unclean by God's word, guess where you went? Outside the camp. If you ate blood, guess where you would go? Outside the camp. You didn't cook that steak long enough? Sorry, Charlie. Outside the camp. 
If you were sick, guess where you were banished to? Outside the camp. If you had a disease, you were not just put outside the camp, but you were stuck outside the camp. That's why lepers were known to have their own colonies, their own little camp outside the camp, because they were banished to being outside the camp. If you engaged in various sexual sins, you were put outside the camp. If you didn't honor the Sabbath, meaning you did not worship God on the seventh day, Saturday, then you would be put outside the camp. If you worshiped your own way, well, I, I know how that they go and do things in the temple and they gather together and do their little teachings. They sacrifice animals, but I can worship God my own way. Well, if you decide you can do it your own way, guess what? You can do it your own way outside the camp. And if you decided that you were going to worship a different God, guess what happened? You're going to go outside the camp. Outside the camp was a place for the dishonest and the diseased. Those who were deprecated, degraded, and depreciated, both the deviant and the detestable. Outside the camp, there was hostility, ethical challenges, and suffering that took place. In theory, it was a place where people were set aside for a time of purification. And yet, for most, it was the place where people would go to be shunned, rejected, and forsaken. But by grace, outside the camp. Verse 12 says, therefore, Jesus also that he might sanctify the people with his own blood suffered outside the gate of the city, which was considered in the city outside the camp. Therefore, let us go forth to him outside the camp, bearing his reproach. For here we have no continuing city, but we seek the one to come. Jesus was crucified outside the gates of Jerusalem. What that meant is that he got put out with everything else that was considered worthless to those who were religious, to those who were in the camp, the, the important camp. He got put out there where all the shunned and the rejected were. He took upon his shoulders all of our defilement and disgrace. He himself shunned, rejected, and forsaken, suffered and died outside the camp. Again, to make the point that this faith that we follow is not about works. You can't work enough. It's not about doing more. You can't do enough. It's not about being good enough. In fact, we have to understand it's not about us at all. It's about Jesus. By grace, outside the camp, you live by grace. He was set apart outside the camp. It says that he might sanctify in some translations, it uses the word make holy, the people with his own blood. If Jesus went outside the camp to suffer reproach, 
to be persecuted, to be shunned, to be rejected in order to sanctify or make holy a people, then we better well know what it means to be sanctified and to be made holy. He died for you and I who are sinners in God's eyes. All our righteousness is as filthy rags in order to make us righteous in God's eyes. But it wasn't just about being made righteous and cleansed. It's one thing to be made righteous and cleansed. It's another thing to be made holy. There's two parts to being made holy. If you look up the word in the original language, to be sanctified, to be made holy, yes, it means that you are separated from profane things. You are set apart. Everybody say set apart. So where you were once in the midst of a bunch of filth, garbage, and evil, and things that are disgusting and detestable, you have now been, by the blood of Jesus, set apart from that stuff, that you would no longer return to that stuff, but now you have been washed clean from that stuff. That's a great thing, and we can rejoice in that. I have been washed clean. My sins are forgiven. In the song that we sang, that means that I have no guilt in life, and I have no fear of death. That is an amazing, amazing thing that Jesus accomplished for us. But the second aspect of holiness is that you were not just set apart to be cleansed, but you were set apart in order that you might become devoted that you would have a purpose and that you would serve that purpose, that you would be dedicated to God. The fullness of holiness, of sanctification, is set apart for two reasons, to be cleansed and to be dedicated to God, that you would be washed clean and that you would then be devoted in what you do and how you spend your time and your energy to God. Two aspects of holiness. Set apart so that you can be cleansed. Set apart so that you can be dedicated and devoted. And for 12 chapters, as I said in the beginning, the author of Hebrews, he points people in their struggles to Jesus. He doesn't say, oh, you need to read this book. Oh, if you just read this letter that Paul wrote. If you, if you just did this, if you did that, if you would just serve more, if you would, if you would you know, go and listen to this speaker, he's a really good speaker, if you would do all these things. No, for 12 chapters, he takes people who are suffering more hell than any one of us will ever probably face in our lives alone, and he says, listen, I know that you're going through it, but you've got to get your eyes on Jesus. And for 12 chapters, that's all he does. I know that you've had properties taken from you, that some of you are being imprisoned, but get your eyes on Jesus. I know that your feelings are hurt and that you're suffering physically because you were probably beaten, but get your eyes on Jesus. For 12 chapters, that's all he does is he explains to them how great Jesus Christ is. But then when he gets here, he makes this transition from the position of Jesus being above all to the practice of Jesus being the way. And right here's what he does. He says, here's what it looks like to fulfill the second aspect of holiness. Here's what it looks like to be dedicated and devoted. Here's what it looks like for the heart to be established by grace. To live outside of the camp is to fully know the grace of Jesus and to be able to offer that same grace to others while learning to live content. Do you know that most of the time, the only reason we can't give the same grace to others that Jesus gave to us is because we aren't content with who we are? Your real attitude problem comes from the fact that you're not content with your own life. 
You have people say things you don't like, do things you don't like, and, and it gets you riled up and fired up. It's all comes typically back to this. You're not content in your life. I mean, like, the, there's some things you guys don't know. Uh, I get, I love Facebook, but I'm not on Facebook. I loved it at one time for connecting with people, but I don't go on there hardly ever anymore. I keep Messenger because it's a way to communicate with people. But just because I keep Messenger, that still allows people to be able to comment and say things to me. Part of the reason why I'm not on Facebook and every now and then, like this week and just a couple weeks ago, I get these messages from people that tell me how bad I am. And, and usually, I don't respond. I know they want a response, but my answer is, I'm not going to give you a response. I don't have to justify who I am because I am content with who I am. If I responded... It would be from a place of not feeling content. And I can promise you, I've responded before, and I have responded poorly many, many a times. And most often, the reason why I would respond poorly is because I know that I'm not content with who I am, that I'm not content with where I am in life. To live content by grace, we live content. Point number two. Outside the camp, you've got to learn to live content. Number five is let your conduct be without covetousness. Now, y'all know what coveting is, right? That's wanting more. You want more, you want more, you want more, you want more. It's, it, it's directly tied to the idea in some translations that you guys might read of the love of money. He says, don't let your conduct, that's your way. Don't let your way, we're talking about the way of Jesus. And he says, don't let your way be, be without Covetous, don't let your conduct be without covetous. Be content with such things as you have. Everybody say, be content. For he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? There's a key verse that you will hear all the time. God will never leave you nor forsake you. Probably one of the most popular words of encouragement that Christians will be quick to quote to other Christians who are struggling is God will never leave you nor forsake you for various reasons, right? Isn't that something that you often hear? It's a famous scripture. Man, I know that you're going through this. I know that you're feeling lonely. Like all these various reasons. God will never leave you nor forsake you. That's a great word of encouragement to other people, but it is actually being used here by the author of Hebrews, which ultimately is God, to encourage Christians not to be lovers of money. How often do you hear this scripture quoted in this fashion? Do any of I don't know that I've ever even used it in this fashion. Like the context of this scripture being quoted right here is is. Hey, brother, I know that you're really struggling lately and you're always wanting more money, more money, more money. But I just want to tell you that God will never leave you nor forsake you. Like, hey, does that not sound ridiculous? 
You've all said it. I'm sure that you've said it for every other reason, but you've probably never said it because you know somebody is greedy, that they're struggling with the love of money, and that they're chasing after the things of the world. You probably don't go to them, encourage them that God will never leave you nor forsake you. That is not something that Christians ever probably say to each other. And yet that's the context of the author of Hebrews. Like, don't be covetous. Don't be a lover of money. You've got to understand, God will never leave you nor forsake you. So learn to be content with what you have. And there's a lot of scriptures that, that is talked about in the New Testament with learning to be content. Philippians 4.11, the apostle Paul would write, not that I, Paul would say, was ever in need for I have learned how to be content with whatever I have. Say, whatever I have. And in that whole context of chapter 4 of Philippians, the idea that Paul is describing is like, listen, you guys have got to learn something. That contentness doesn't come from things. That contentness comes from the heart. That I have had, and he goes on this description of a, having a lot of light in life and having a little in life. And I've learned the, the idea, the concept, the truth of being content in all things. It's important for us to understand or understand he's describing the idea of being content not just in having little in life but that you are content in all he would write to first timothy his young disciple that he's been raising up in the faith and say this in chapter 6 verses 6 through 10 as a word of encouragement he says now godliness with contentment is great gain how many people want great gain in their life in some of your translations, it says great wealth. You want to have great wealth in your life? Then you've got to understand this principle, that godliness with contentment is wealth in your life. He says, for we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. Having food and clothing, with these we shall be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare into many foolish and harmful lusts, which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, for which some have strayed from the faith and their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. And he drives home the idea of content, living to be content, living to be content, living to be content. What we've got to understand is this. I'll throw this out there. Some of you may like, like it, some of you may not. And I've heard this before in the church, and I've heard it from people who call themselves followers of God. Like, if we're not careful, contentment can equate to laziness. And contentment is not laziness in the Bible. The Apostle Paul was anything but lazy. And yet there are Christians who will accept living in poverty. There are Christians who will be okay with living off of the government, of living off of people's taxes, and they will call it being content. When the truth is, it's lazy. Because the nature of humanity is that we are lazy. The nature of humanity is that we don't want to work for a living. It has nothing to do with being content with little in life. It has everything to do with the position of the heart. Now, our world culture will try to convince you that you always need something better, right? That you need something newer, that you need something more. From more fries 
in your Happy Meal, supersize, to more cars in your driveway, more is always better. Is that not true? I can tell you from experience. At my coffee stand, when we started that thing, we were told offer six flavors like Starbucks. That's what the people that were helping us out told us. Only offer a couple different sizes. And so as we opened up, we actually chose to have four sizes, 12, 16, 20, or 24 ounce. And if you're from a Starbucks you know, cafe, then you're going to call it Vente and all those other fancy Italian words. But people would come through our stand and they'd say, I want your biggest size. Oh, you want a 24? Oh, that's all you guys have? And so, you know, for the first few years, that was okay. I decided after hearing it enough that when we were out buying supplies one day, I bought a case of 32-ounce cups, and I was going to bring them into the stand. And my wife said, no, we are not selling 32-ounce cups. Like, she's health conscious. She thinks people are crazy. You're not going to drink, we are not going to contribute to people drinking 32 ounces of coffee. Like, that's not okay. It's a religious thing for her. It's a health thing for her. Like, there was no way we were going to sell 32-ounce cups. So guess what? Those 32-ounce cups sat in our basement for more than likely over a year until finally I convinced her, please let me bring in the 32-ounce cups. And nowadays, guess what we sell a a large portion of? 32-ounce 32-ounce Red Bulls, 32-ounce Blendeds, 32-ounce Lattes, and I have 44-ounce cups sitting in the basement right now. (laughs) You want to know why? Because more is always better in our mind because it's the lie of the world. In the world's camp, to covet... To want more is always accepted, if not expected, right? In order to be, to, in order to be able to live content, you've got to learn to live outside of the camp of this world. And here's what I find interesting. Think about this. When this popular quote, God will never leave you nor forsake you, was originally spoken, it was spoken by God to Joshua. As, as he was about to lead the nation of Israel into battle to fight for their future. Listen, to fight for the promise that he had given them. I don't know, like God tempted his people with this promise. And then when they get to the edge of the promise, guess what? I'm not just going to hand it to you guys. I want you to fight for that promise. And he tells them, they've got to learn this lesson. I will never leave you, nor forsake you. Now that, that is a great thing to say in the midst of having to fight for your future, to fight for your promise. But to a bunch of struggling Christians who are new in the Christian faith, who have suffered tremendously, so much that they have been persecuted for saying they believe in Jesus, to the gathering of believers that have chosen to walk away from everything that they have known and their beliefs of God, and now have lost family members. They've been rejected. They've been shunned. They're living outside of the camp of their society and their culture. 
to a group of struggling believers who have been cut off economically. Some of them probably lost their jobs to a group of struggling believers who have been potentially beaten and abused. Some of them put in jail and some of them have lost their lives. He tells those struggling believers, don't be covetous. Are you kidding me? They are suffering for their faith. They are suffering for what they, what they believed. They are outside the camp, shunned and rejected. And you look at them and you say, don't be covetous. Learn to live content. I don't know about you, but I'd be like, really? Do you really understand something here? We are getting beat up for what we believe. Not just what we do. I'm not in jail because of something bad that I did, but because of what I believe. And you have the goal to tell me in my struggles and my doubts that I've got to learn to live content. Doesn't make sense. Unless you understand this, that in the original Greek language, the word content actually means this, to be possessed of unfailing strength. To be strong, to suffice, and to be enough. To defend and to ward off. You see, coveting inside the camp actually makes your flesh weak. You'll just want more and more and more because your flesh just wants more and more and more because that's the nature of who we are. We just want more and more and more. It makes you weak physically, emotionally, and spiritually. But to be content outside the camp with those who share in their sufferings, in your sufferings, to be content outside the camp with those who are also shunned, shamed, and rejected is to trust God no matter what the circumstances are, no matter what it looks like with my eyes, no matter what it feels like with my emotions, I know this, that he will never leave me nor forsake me, that he is my provider and my deliverer, that he is my helper. What can man do to me? That is strength. And that's what it means to be content. I'm able to fight off the ways of the world. I'm able to defend who I am because I am content in who I am. It gives you the strength. But you've got to understand it gives you the strength for a purpose. And that purpose is that you would be able to love outside the camp. By grace, live content through love. He writes in chapter 13, verse 15, Point number three, he says, let us therefore offer through Jesus a continual sacrifice of praise to God, proclaiming our allegiance to his name, and don't forget to do good and to share with those in need. These are the sacrifices that please God. I want you to hear this. Again, he's describing that this is, this is no longer about works. It's no longer about sacrifices in order to gain God's love. But because of God's love, we choose to make sacrifices. 
But these sacrifices are sacrifices of love outside the camp. And if you break these down into what he describes, you'll see two types of sacrifices of love. The first sacrifice of love is that you learn to love God passionately. What does it mean to love God passionately? Well, there's people who say that they believe in God, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they love God passionately. To love God passionately, he describes as continuing to offer a sacrifice of praise. He talks about the fruit of our lips, what comes out of our mouth, and that what comes out of our mouth should always be continual praise. It should always be giving thanks to God, no matter what it is that we are going through. You know, it's one thing to say that you believe in God. It's another thing to continually be giving God thanks in everything that takes place in your life. Like, yes, I believe in God, but you know what? I'm going to complain over here when things aren't going the way that I want to, and I'm going to gripe about why this is happening in life. And there's more complaining and griping that goes on in life than praise that takes place. And what he's trying to get these people to believe who are who are tremendously suffering for their faith is, it doesn't matter what you're going through. It doesn't matter what it looks like. It doesn't matter what it feels like. You've got to learn to give God praise in the big things and the little things, in the things that are easy and in the things that are hard, in the things that bless you and the things that you think might be cursings in your life, but you don't understand. You've got to be able to give God praise in all things, in every aspect of life. That is what it means to love God passionately passionately. It's not about me or what I can do. It is by grace that I've learned to live content so that I can, through love, be able to give him the praise that he deserves. The second aspect of loving sacrificially is that we would love people purposefully. Say purposefully. I'm going to get out of order real quick here. Now, I hope that you guys have heard these two statements somewhere before. The idea of loving purposefully is because all too often, if we're not purposeful to love like God has called us to love, we won't love. And that is why in the list of all of the ways that he's describing Christians living outside the camp, he multiple times says in this chapter, remember, don't forget, remember, remember this, don't forget this, because you've got to be purposeful in order to love this way, because it's not the way that the world's camp loves. In order to love this way, you've got to love outside the camp. You've got to be purposeful in loving people. And so he says, don't forget. Everybody say, don't forget. Don't forget to do good and to share with those in need. In other words, It's one thing to love God with words, but it's another thing to love him in our actions. Our sacrifices should be fleshed out in action. In verses 1 through 4, at the beginning of the chapter, he gives us like this list, this odd list of the way that Christians should live their lives. Let brotherly love continue. Don't forget to entertain strangers, for by doing some unwittingly entertain angels. Number three, remember the prisoners as if you're chained with them. Those who are mistreated, since you yourselves are in the body also. Marriage is honorable among all, and the bed undefiled. Fornicators and adulterers will be judged by God. As Christians, we purpose to practice sacrificial love 
outside the camp, and he actually takes this list, which is, which is a description of three ways that we're to practice sacrificial love. Number one is, is in our family, in our marriage, the immediate core of who we are supposed to be. Believers who have God at the center, our marriage is a priority. Now, the world's camp will try and tell you it's okay to be a fornicator, to be sexually immoral. It's okay to do all sorts of these things in our culture. In fact, it's becoming less of a big deal to even have committed adultery. And the devil will lie to you and tell you whatever he can that it's okay to go outside the bounds of marriage. Sex while not married or sex besides who you're married to. And you may think, well, if nobody knows, then there's no harm to it. But he drives home this point. You may think, if nobody knows, like, there's not really any consequences. But do you not think that God is faithful to his word? And that he says in his word, he will judge those. Like, this is the hard aspect of his word, his truth. He will judge. You may not see the consequences right now, but he will judge those who defile and dishonor the bounds of marriage. Now, I could make my whole sermon about this aspect right here in our marriage. The idea is about honoring our marriage, honoring the person that we're loved to. And one of the aspects of honoring them is that I've, I've held myself out for that person. From the very beginning, the bounds of marriage that was defined by God in the book of Genesis goes all the way back, regardless of what you see in the Old Testament of men of the faith, was that one man and one woman would become one flesh for life. Anything outside of that is outside the boundaries of marriage. Anything. One flesh. And that one flesh was determined through this thing that we call sex, intercourse. That was the aspect, the initial aspect, the initial aspect of becoming one flesh within the boundaries of marriage. Not that you would become one flesh with 30 different people before you finally found the right one to become one flesh with. But that you would become one flesh with that person forever. That's what honors God outside the camp. Because the camp will tell you it's okay to have 30 different people. It's okay to be married and divorced as many times as you want. Just be happy in life. That's what it will tell you. But you want to honor God, you've got to learn to live outside the camp. And the camp will deceive you. But the boundaries of marriage outside the camp is one man, one woman become one flesh. In this morning service, we had Dave and Millie Sir in here. Last weekend, they celebrated 65 years of marriage. 65 years. You've got to live a while to be able to celebrate 65 years of marriage. You have to endure some things to be able to celebrate 65 years of marriage. You have to be able to learn to be content to celebrate 65 years of marriage. You've got to be able to learn to love through 65 years of marriage because it is not normal. It is not what is common in our world's camp today. But that is what honors God. The second thing is this. 
that we love sacrificially by learning to, through love, loving our church family. Now, I find it a little bit interesting. There's an assumption that the author gives here that the church already loves each other. He says to continue, to continue to have this, this brotherly love. And the idea here that he uses in the original language is that it's a brother's love. It's an affectionate, kindly love that we would be kind and affectionate towards each other. That's what should be within the church, especially if we've learned to first live by grace and to live content, that we would be able to continue in this kind of affection towards each other. It's the idea that in the midst of what they're going through and their suffering, that they would care about each other, that despite the challenges uh, that each individual person is going through, that they will be there to support them, to, to bear with them. That's the description of love within the church family. And the challenge is for you guys this morning and for me to look around the church and ask yourself, is this the kind of affection, kindly affection that you have for the people that you gather together with? Do you really care? Do you really know what is going on in each other's lives? And then he gives us these words, which sometimes we take outside of the idea of the church family, but it's not meant to be. It's to remember the prisoners as if you are chained with them. Now, I'm sure this verse has started many a prison ministries, but this isn't about remembering prisoners who are imprisoned for doing wrong things as if we are chained with them. This is specifically written to believers who were more than likely arrested and imprisoned for their faith. And it says, not just do we remember them, but in the idea of kindly affection, that we would remember them as if we are chained with them, if we are imprisoned with them. I don't know that we really understand what it means to be in chains for our faith. You know, the, the persecuted church has been a passion of my heart for years. And over the last 15 years, we've taken times where we just spent a Sunday praying for Christians being persecuted in nations around this world. And for in particular, Christians who were brought up in, in articles like Voice of the Martyrs and, and uh, different, um, different organizations that help support the, the persecuted church around the country, around the world. And so we would take times where we'd pray for them. And one time I felt like God said, he challenged me. You read about this stuff. I'm thankful that you, you guys in the church pray for this stuff. But do you really know what it means to remember them as if you are in chains with them? And so I preached a sermon one Sunday. I think it was before I was senior pastor. I knew I wouldn't have to be accountable that way. And I talked about the idea of remembering them as if you are in chains with them. Do we know what, it like, what it's like to, to gather together as believers and have space around us to where we're not just crammed together? Do we know what it's like as believers to have such a desire to worship together that we will, you know, not have to sit on padded chairs in order to be comfortable while the pastor is preaching, that we don't have to be in a, in a climate-controlled atmosphere in order to have great worship together? Do we really know what it's like to be persecuted or as to be in chains with them? And so as, as I described these things in this sermon, I had a shotgun in my hand. And I said, do we know what it would be like to be at work and to mention the name of Jesus? And we hear this. Do you know what it would be like to be walking down the street and you're talking with another fellow believer and you hear this? 
Do you know what it would be like to be gathered together in the church and somebody would break in and you hear this? And I had two of our elders bust in the back wooden doors with shotguns and we all cocked them at the same time. And there was some people that almost had a heart attack. You could hear a pin drop. One lady got up and left our church. She's never been back. Yep, I, I see her today when I'm at Walmart. Do we really know what it means to have such a kindly affection for our brothers and sisters in Christ that we could remember them all around the world as if we are in chains with them? That's what's being described here, this sacrificial love. We're willing to sacrifice that love for our brothers and sisters in Christ. And then I like how he says, you remember these people that are mistreated in prison since you yourselves are in the body also. Don't you think that's backwards? Like normally you would hear somebody say, do you remember them, that they're a part of the body also? Right, like these outliers that they're a part of the body also? But that's not how he words it. He words it just in the reverse. Do you remember them as if you're in chains with them? Because you're a part of the body also. Like they are the ones that are out there suffering for my sake, suffering for my name, suffering for my words. They're the ones that are completely sacrificing all that they are, all that they have, because they are standing up and being bold in what they believe about who I am in their lives. You are a part of that body also. So remember them. Have that kindly, affectionate, sacrificial love for them as they're leading the way in suffering for the name of Christ. And then, of course, John 13, 35, where Jesus would tell us that the people outside your camp would know you by your love for one another. Do people in the Silver Valley really know us by our love for each other? Number three, the love of strangers. This is like completely a challenge for most of us. Our leadership took these tests. I don't know. I think I mentioned it once uh, a few weeks ago. 80% of our leadership, they're introverts. So it's hard to get outside of their box. Number three is about learning to get outside of your camp. See, the first two is all about getting outside of the world's camp that you could live outside the camp. But just like the lepers would develop their own little camp, we develop our own little camps. We have our friends, we have our Christian friends, we have the people we're comfortable talking to, we're comfortable, we feel safe, we know these people, and what he's saying is, no, you've gotta to learn to get outside of your own camp. Because this is about a love of strangers. Now in context in these days, people traveled and there were inns for them to stay at. But the inns were known as places of, of filth. There was evil things that took place. They weren't safe. It's not a place you'd want to take your family if you were traveling. And so what he's doing is he's encouraging them, open up your homes. And when these Christians come through, allow them to come into your home and care for them in your home as they are traveling through. So, of course, today's church is not quite the same. Nevertheless, the principle of the original language remains the idea that we should be hospitable to people that we do not know. Like, how many times are there people that gather together in this church you really don't know? 
And it's hard to have conversations. It's hard to get together. But the challenge that he's laying out for us is for us to get outside of our own camp, to get outside of our comfort zone, and risk inviting someone that we don't know into our lives. Remember, he says, don't forget to do this. Don't forget to love the strangers. From the position of Jesus to the practice of Jesus, he's saying this is the way. Now, I want to close with verses 7 and 8. Verse 7 says this, Remember those who rule over you, who have spoken the word of God to you, whose faith follow, considering the outcome of their conduct. Now, there's plenty of verses here in verses 7 and 8 later on in the chapter that talk about honoring the leaders that speak to you or that are over you, and I'm not addressing that. What I'm addressing right here in this context is the past tense of the word, spoken. He just left chapter 11 talking about the heroes of the faith, and he mentioned some great names, right? If you remember when Taylor preached this, he talked about Moses and Joshua and Abel and Enoch and Noah and Abraham and Sarah. He talks about Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and and Rahab. He talks about Gideon. He talks about all of these great men and women of the faith who in all of their imperfections, their struggles, their hardships, and their doubts, they overcame their circumstances through living outside the camp. They were different than the rest of the world. And what the author's trying to tell us in verse 8 is he says, listen, man, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. What Jesus did for those great men and women of faith yesterday in their struggles, in their circumstances, he will still do for you today in your struggles and in your circumstances. If he did it for them, he'll do it for you, and he'll do it forever. He closes with these words in verse 22. He says, I appeal to you, to the Christians, bear with the word of exhortation. You know, that idea of bear means to hold oneself up, to be firm. In other words, what he's saying is if if you are sitting here, even this morning, and you have questions, you have doubts, if there's some aspect of life that you're suffering in, the author and all of us that are here today would say, we know what you're going through. And as he would say, I beg you, that's that appeal. I appeal to you, I beg you, hold yourself up. Be firm in your faith by holding on to these words, 13 chapters of admonition, of encouragement and consolation. Hold your faith up by these words that have so fully explained that Jesus really is above all. That Jesus is the way so that by grace we live content through love outside the camp.
Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for your word this morning.